Welcome to Treadmill Talks with Shannon Maves, a podcast for athletes and fitness enthusiasts to pass the time during mind-numbing cardio while I use my no-bullshit coaching style to educate, inspire, and entertain. I'm your host, Shannon Maves. Now let's walk and talk. Well, hello and welcome to episode 40 of Treadmill Talks. Even though this really feels like it's episode 41 because I just recorded this entire episode and then an error occurred and I lost the whole fucking thing. But that's just the way of the world with technology these days and we are moving on and we're just going to do the whole thing again. So, hey, what's up? All right. So episode 40, like really? What the fuck? How is that even possible? God, it seems like it was just yesterday that I was doing treadmill talks on my Instagram stories. I would actually walk on my treadmill and do these quick little like two minute blurbs about whatever the fuck I felt like talking about that day just to pass the time during my cardio while attempting to also spread some knowledge to anyone who wanted to listen to me rambling about kinesiology or nutrition or whatever the fuck I was nerding out on at the time. After doing them for a while, I got more comfortable on camera and had a decent amount of people actually tell me how useful and informative they were, which was pretty cool. And I still remember the first time someone suggested that I start a podcast. I thought they were fucking nuts. But here I am podcasting away, wishing I would have started way back then. But hey, the best time to start was yesterday, and the second best time to start is today, right? So here I am now recording my 40th podcast episode of Treadmill Talks. Obviously, my little chats have evolved a bit since then. They've become more like 15 to 20 minute blurbs, and I'm clearly not recording these on my treadmill anymore, but at least they remain available for more than 24 hours now. <laughs> Anywho, for episode 40, I wanted to do another Q&A episode because, I don't know, the shorter question and answer type format kind of takes me back to those days of doing treadmill talks on my stories in a way, I suppose. Call me nostalgic, I guess. But it's also because I do these episodes for you guys, and I want to answer your questions. So I put a question box on my story last week, and I took a handful of my favorite questions to answer today. There's a couple about general training, some about nutrition, and a few more specifically about competing. So I think this should be a pretty good balance that hopefully everyone can get a little something out of this episode. I'm going to start with the two questions that I pulled about training. And the first one is, what's the difference between free weights and machines? I think I may have actually talked about this one briefly in one of my earliest episodes, the one about resistance training, but I'm going to go ahead and answer this question again because it is honestly such a great question because I know a lot of other people wonder this same thing, but they never think to ask it. So let me break it down. When you are working with free weights, be it dumbbells, kettlebells, or a barbell, you are working against the pull of gravity, meaning that the resistance you are working against is being pulled vertically. No matter how you look at it, that's the direction of force you're working against. If you drop a weight, 
it is going to fall straight down vertically. That is the direction you're working against. You can adjust your physical position in relation to the weights so that you are training in a different plane of motion, but that's the answer to a different question. And I want to kind of cruise past that topic of different planes of motion just to keep this answer as concise as possible. Now, machines typically work against the pull of some type of cable. And this allows the direction of force to change to work horizontally, diagonally, and even vertically, but pulling up rather than pulling down with gravity. Think about a lat pull down. You have to reach up to pull the cable down and you are resisting the force of the cable as you start to reach back up again. This type of resistance would literally be impossible with free weights or a barbell. Because if you were to reach up to grab some type of free weight, you would be resisting the weights on the way down and you would have to push the weights back up. So therefore you would actually be working your shoulders rather than your lats. Now I want you to picture a seated row machine. The force of this machine pulls in a horizontal fashion. Again, something that is a literal impossibility to do with free weights. The same principle applies for any type of diagonal movement. But what I really want to touch on when it comes to the difference between free weights and machines is how your body works when using each of them. Free weights generally require a lot more stabilization, whereas machines are generally a lot better for isolation. For example, when you're doing a barbell back squat, you are primarily training your glutes, quads, and hamstrings. But because the barbell is not being held in place by anything other than you, it means that you can move in any direction you want to with that barbell. So if you want to execute a clean squat with perfect form, it's going to require a lot more work from your stabilization muscles, like your core abductors and adductors. But if you were to do, let's say a squat on a Smith machine, then all of a sudden that bar can only move up and down which is going to take a lot of work off of your stabilization muscles. But that's not always a bad thing. If your goal is overall strength and balance and stuff, then dumbbells and barbells will generally be more beneficial. But if your goal is to specifically target certain muscles or groups of muscles, then machines might be a better choice. For instance, the gym that I have been training at recently caters a lot to bodybuilders. And we train for hypertrophy, which means we typically want to train with more isolation. So there's a good amount of pretty specialized equipment at that gym, and there's not a ton of free weights. However, if you do not have a foundation to train like this, you can set yourself up for injury because you still need to train those stabilization muscles. Lastly, machines can be really good if you're struggling to connect with a certain muscle or if you're learning a new movement or something. I love having my clients who are just learning how to perform a certain movement like an RDL on a Smith machine because it kind of forces that movement pattern and it's easier to feel it in your glutes and hamstrings since it takes out all of that stabilization. The next training question is asking how much time you should rest between sets. And this is going to depend on a few variables, such as 
what's your current goal with your training? Are you training for strength or are you training for hypertrophy? It's also going to depend on what the exercise is because a compound lift like a squat or a deadlift that trains multiple large muscles is going to require a lot more rest between sets than an accessory lift that trains much smaller muscles like a bicep curl or a calf raise. Fun fact is that men and women also require different amounts of rest times. Typically speaking, men require more rest than women do. If you've ever trained with someone of the opposite sex, you may have noticed that the woman was ready and raring to go while the dude was still recovering. And it's not necessarily because the guy was working harder than the girl, although unfortunately that is oftentimes the case. Statistically speaking, women do not push themselves as hard as men do in the gym. But even if they are both putting in the exact same amount of effort, guys just need more rest than women do. Which just goes to show that we are clearly the superior sex. <laughs> My clients are all given suggested rest times with their training assignments so that I know they are getting sufficient rest between sets. But generally speaking, the rule of thumb is to lift until you can't and rest until you can. And what I mean by that is you want to use a weight that is challenging enough so that the last rep feels damn near impossible to complete. And then you want to rest until you feel like you can do that all over again. So if I assign a client squats with a rep scheme of let's say eight and a suggested rest time of two to three minutes, then I expect them to be completing anywhere from like six to 10-ish reps, however many that they are able to complete until it feels like the next rep is not physically possible. Then I want them resting a minimum of two minutes to make sure that they are recovered enough to complete another set. But I also don't want them resting too long and dicking around. And just a little side note to my clients, if y'all are ready to go on your next set before your suggested rest time, then you did not push hard enough during your previous set. But again, something like a bicep curl or a calf raise is not going to require as much rest time as squats or deadlifts are because they are much smaller groups of muscles and they require a lot less work to complete no matter what their rep scheme is. So your rest time for something like that might only be like 30 seconds or a minute or something. Now, if you're training for strength, your rest times are going to be quite a bit longer because you need to make sure that your muscles are fully recovered so that you can put in your 100% strongest effort again. But if you're training to burn out or something, then your rest times are more likely going to be quite a bit shorter to keep that intensity higher because you don't want your muscles to be fully recovered. So yeah, I feel like I didn't actually answer this question um, because unfortunately, as with a lot of things in the fitness world, it all depends, which is literally why people hire me to help them because this shit can for sure get confusing. And I have spent years researching and studying and experimenting to figure out things like the perfect rest times. But let's move on to a couple of nutrition questions now. The first one is how many meals per day should I be eating? <laughs> well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> but luckily, I think I can actually help you guys out a little bit more answering this one. 
Ultimately, it's going to come down to whatever number of meals you enjoy most and can consistently adhere to while staying on your plan. Sure, there are some nuances when it comes to things like digestion and muscle protein synthesis, but it also depends on what your current goal is. And adherence is going to play a much bigger role in progress. If you are in a fat loss phase and you are eating in a deficit, then you want to find a meal split that is going to leave you feeling as satisfied as possible while also keeping you as energized as possible. If you're in a growing phase and you are eating in a surplus, then you want to find a meal split that works with your digestion while making it possible to eat the necessary amount of food. Now, regardless of which phase you are in, I recommend eating a minimum of at least three meals per day for the sake of digestion. Because if you eat too big of meals, you're more likely to feel bloated and weighed down. And if you have a high protein goal, it's going to be a lot harder to hit if you're eating less frequently. I also don't recommend going above six meals per day because that is not only going to take up a lot of your time just sitting down and eating, but smaller meals can also leave you feeling less satisfied. After coaching for quite a few years now, I have found that people are generally most successful when they consume four or five meals per day. It allows for meals that are big enough to leave you feeling satisfied without them being so big that you are choking down your protein and feeling bloated afterwards. It also allows for more optimal muscle protein synthesis, which does become more important during a fat loss phase. Obviously, everyone is going to be different, which is why I recommend that you experiment with different meal timing and frequency. This question leads me into the next one pretty nicely, actually, which is meal plans or macros. And the reason I say that the question about meal frequency leads into this one nicely is because that's one of the things that I actually really like about meal plans. They can really help you figure out your ideal meal frequency, meal structure, and meal timing. But I'm also a fan of macros too. I think both methods can be beneficial. And I think that both methods have their drawbacks too. Macros are fucking awesome for teaching people about nutrition and realizing things like portion sizes. But macros can also get kind of abused when people start to eat tons of shit just because it fits their macros. Meal plans are phenomenal for reducing decision fatigue and teaching things like the importance of single ingredient foods. But one of the drawbacks with meal plans is that there is more potential for nutrient deficiencies if you are eating the same things day after day for an extended period of time. Macros can help people with food relationships if they struggle with viewing foods as good or bad because it can teach them that all foods really do fit. And meal plans can help people with food relationships if they're struggling with being too food focused since they don't have to think about it as much if they're on a meal plan. Honestly, if you're able to, I recommend trying both for at least a period of time. I think that there's a lot to learn with each method. And once you've tried both, then I recommend making a loose meal plan with your macros. That's my favorite method because you kind of get the best of both worlds. You take away the decision fatigue and food focus when you have a general idea of what you're going to eat each day, but you also allow yourself enough flexibility 
to make a swap or two here and there when you're craving something more specific. If you're leaning towards one or the other though, I think that some important things to keep in mind are that with macros, you want to make sure that you are still prioritizing single ingredient foods and that you are consuming lots of fruits and veggies while allowing yourself the variety that you desire. And if you're on a meal plan, make sure that you keep in enough variety so as not to deprive yourself of certain nutrients. This is why a lot of my clients who track macros are also given a goal to eat a certain amount of fruits and veggies per day and are told to keep things like treats and supplemental protein to a minimum. And my clients who are on meal plans are given a choice of protein for each meal. They're given a choice of fats, a choice of carbs, and they're given a choice of any fruits or vegetables. The meal plans I assign are honestly still pretty fucking flexible. Okay, so the next few questions I'm going to answer are more specifically about competing. And I love this first one. It came from one of my posing clients who asked, does heel height actually matter? Yes, heel height totally matters. The wrong shoe can throw off your balance completely. And I'm a great example of this because I have a long torso and shorter legs. It's actually pretty funny because Matt is like three inches taller than me when we're standing. But then when we sit down, we're basically the same height because I am just all torso. (laughs) But anyway, I actually got feedback from a judge at I think my second show ever that he wanted to see me in a taller shoe. And I was such a dumbass rookie. I was like, Ugh, what the fuck? That's my feedback. That's stupid. But now I get it. And he was absolutely right. I was wearing shorter heels because I was a fucking noob and they were easier to walk in. But they totally made my legs look stockier, which did not match my long and lean top half. Eventually, I switched to a taller heel and it brought so much more balance to my physique But you also don't want a shoe that is like super clunky or anything either because that will obviously distract from your physique. And if you're the opposite of me and you have crazy long legs or something, then you might actually look better in a shorter heel. It's all about what's going to make your physique look best and most balanced. At the regional level, I don't think it makes much of a difference as far as how tall you are on stage because you're divided up into height classes. But if I'm not mistaken... I do think that some of the shorter pros will wear higher heels to try to help them be a little more even with the taller girls on stage since they are not divided into height classes and they all compete against each other. Which I have to say does add a pretty interesting different element to the IFBB. Okay, the next question I want to go over is asking how to know which division you fit best, which is another great question. Because I think that even a lot of seasoned competitors have probably at least toyed with the idea of switching divisions before. Some people fit a certain division like a glove, but a lot of us could kind of go either way between two different divisions. So it's important to make sure you really understand the criteria of each division, which I can go ahead and go over super quickly, or at least I'm going to go over the three most popular divisions, but there are more divisions than just these three. Okay, so the bikini division is the least muscular division. It calls for an hourglass shape with good balance between upper and lower body. The judges want to see full delts, a tight waist, and round glutes with a noticeable separation between glutes and hamstrings, but not so much so that there are any striations or graininess. 
their posing consists of just front and back poses and it's fairly fluid and somewhat subjective posing. Wellness calls for similar conditioning to bikini, but it is a much more muscular division, particularly in the lower body. Their posing routine requires quarter turns to show off glutes, hamstrings, and quads, but the judges are still looking for a tight waist and a developed upper body. The figure division requires slightly more conditioning than bikini and wellness. It's more muscular than bikini, and it does call for balance between upper and lower body, unlike wellness. They perform fairly structured quarter turns to show off glutes, hamstrings, quads, and delts, and lats. When it comes to figuring out which division you would fit best, you kind of have to be honest with yourself about your genetics. If you can easily put on size everywhere, then maybe figure would be a good place to start. If you can easily put on size on your lower half, but you struggle with your upper body, then maybe wellness would be a good starting point. And if you're a bit on the smaller side, but fairly proportionate between upper and lower, then bikini would probably be a good place to start. Honestly, though, things like height can play a pretty big role too, though. For instance, I love the figure division, but given my height, it would be so hard for me to put on enough size to be able to stack up against those girls. The other thing I would consider is the way you want to live your day-to-day life. Because as fun as it is molding your body to take different shapes and stuff, you want to be sure to train in a way that you actually enjoy. If you hate training legs, then wellness probably isn't the division for you. But if you're training for bikini and you have to limit the type of movements you can do as to not grow your quads too much, even though you love training your quads, then maybe you should think about the wellness division. Remember that the entire point of this sport is to enjoy it and have fun. And show day is just one day. You've got to make sure you enjoy the whole process. Okay, so I'm coming up on the last question and I'm kind of chuckling to myself because I started this episode talking about how short my original treadmill talks were and how these podcast episodes are only about 15 to 20 minutes. And then I proceeded to record one of my longer episodes. (laughs) But I do want to answer this last question because it's another good one. Are PEDs necessary to go pro? The person who asked this question is asking more specifically about the bikini division. And what prompted this question was a video that was going around for a while that was made by an IFBB pro who is also a coach. Unfortunately, though, the message she was trying to convey was a bit misleading to some people. What she was trying to say was that a lot of bikini pros do take enhancements and that it can be very challenging for many competitors to go pro without taking gear. However, the way it came across was more along the lines of it being an impossibility to go pro without taking PEDs, which is just not true in any division, honestly, but especially not true in the bikini division. Yes, the bikini division has become much more muscular over the past decade. Honestly, the bikini pros nowadays look more like the figure pros did 10 years ago, which is part of the reason why I have fallen more and more in love with bikini, even though I do still love figure. But bikini has evolved into the exact physique that I personally have been striving for, which 
is totally doable without taking shit. But some women are indeed just more genetically blessed. And they can achieve a pro-level physique a lot faster than most other women. But then you've got the vast majority of competitors who are not genetically blessed. They might just be like, ah, nope, I'm going to go ahead and speed this shit up and take some VAR or Primo or whatever because I want my pro card meow. Or maybe they are naturally really tiny and they've already reached their genetic potential. I hate to say it, but those types of girls are the ones who may not be able to go pro without taking gear. But to be honest, most bikini competitors at the regional level are not on shit. Maybe some clenbuterol the last few weeks of prep to help them get stage lean. But if they have a half-decent coach, they're probably not going to be taking steroids at the regional level. Once you get to the national level, though, it does get to be a little bit more cutthroat because you've got the girls who have been doing this shit for years and they are fighting to win that pro card and they will do anything to win that pro card. So there's definitely a much higher percentage of them that are taking enhancements. Having said that, though, there are plenty of girls who have gone pro totally naturally and not just in the bikini division either. Once you get into divisions like wellness and figure, though, it definitely does become a lot harder to find competitors who made it to the IFBB naturally, though. Those divisions are seriously so fucking jacked at the pro level. But again, this person was asking more specifically about bikini. So to answer this question, I'd have to say no. You definitely do not have to take PEDs to make it to the pro level. But a lot of girls do. And it does make for a bit of an uneven playing field. But I don't know. That's kind of just the name of the game if you want to get into the IFBB. I say use it as fuel to work even harder. Because how fucking cool would it be to go pro naturally when you're standing next to girls who are taking stuff? I don't know. I think it would make the victory even sweeter. But if you want an even playing field when it comes to being natural, then I would recommend competing in an organization like the OCB. They have pro shows as well, and they actually drug test their athletes. And if you want to take gear to help you get into the IFBB, then I am not judging you. Just be smart about it. Do your research and don't just take whatever your coach is giving you. Maybe listen to my episode about PEDs. And you can always reach out to me privately too if you have questions. And also, don't just believe everything that everyone posts on Instagram. And don't jump to conclusions either. I saw the video that sparked this question. And the girl who made it is actually pretty smart. But she just didn't word shit very well. Anywho. That's it for the questions that I wanted to go over today. Thank you to everyone who submitted them, and I hope that everyone listening got at least something out of this episode. If you enjoyed it and found it informative or at least entertaining, let me know. Send me a DM and tell me your thoughts. I would love to know your favorite parts or key takeaways. Thank you for listening to Treadmill Talks. If this episode taught you something, lit a fire under your ass, or at least helped you forget how long you've been walking in place, please leave a review or take a screenshot to share on your social media. Don't forget to tag me at Shannon Maves so I can give you some love right back. And thanks again for listening to my treadmill talk.